Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We ask that you would come into this place, that you would fill our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would lead us this morning, and that we would be changed as a result, that you would show us a new way of being in the world. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. It is good to be with you this morning. I heard one person say amen, so I'll, I'll, I'll go home. No, it's good to be with you this morning in a little different capacity than usual, um, but good nonetheless. Uh, I have to say that if I were a chef, one of the most difficult things for me would be to step out of the kitchen and enjoy someone else's cooking. So for me to be here and to be led in worship by our team this morning, I want to thank Jared and the rest of the team. Uh, week to week, they do such a wonderful job in leading us in worship. So if you have a chance, if you see one of them this week, next week, another week, if you would, please be sure to thank them for, for the work they do in leading us in worship. A couple of housekeeping items that I want to bring to your attention this morning. First, I am not Pastor Jafet. Now that that's clear... Uh, J Pastor Japheth is in, in Lincoln this weekend for camp meeting. He's speaking to a group of young adults there. So our prayers and thoughts are with him uh, that he will have safe and not too speedy travel on the way back home. Uh, second, uh, fellowship lunch is next week, June 11. So uh, if you'd like to bring something to contribute to help, please contact Lana, Schle Lana Schleisner. Uh, her contact information is in your worship guide. Does everyone have one of the worship guides, by the way? Good. Um, finally, uh, you may have noticed some things as you came into the church this week. Things look a little different in some places. Um, that is thanks to, this week was the first uh, week of our summer internship. We had a crew of about a half a dozen, five or six of our youth are here working as interns this summer. And you will notice some of the work that they're doing in the building. As summer goes on, you'll see them in other places. They're going to be doing a lot more than they even realize yet. Um, no, we were really glad to have them here. I have to say, they were here Wednesday and Thursday of this week. And I came in yesterday after having them here Wednesday, Thursday. And it was so quiet. And so they just, they bring such a good energy into the building. So we're grateful for them. Um, if you don't know who they, well, you, you may not know who they are, but we will introduce them to you at some point. Uh, we are starting a new series this week about Christianity and culture. It's called Resisting Restlessness. And we're actually talking about more than just Christianity and culture. We're we're, we're, but I couldn't give everything in the way in the, uh, away in the title. Um, or you would have maybe just stayed home. So um, we're talking about something more specific than Christianity and culture. We're actually talking about something this week that has been since Seventh-day Adventism as a tribe was established uh, it's been central to our identity. It's, well, it's half of our name, Seventh-day Adventist. Um, so we're talking about Sabbath. But as we do that, um, well, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was at home with my kids, with Ellie and Anderson. And everything was going smoothly until I heard a loud crash upstairs, which when you have two kids, you get used to crashes. But all of a sudden, there were feet pounding. I heard from one end of the house moving to the stairs, and all of a sudden I heard, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And I, wasn't, I was expecting screaming, tears, 
but there was excitement in Ellie's voice, and I wasn't sure. So she came pounding down the stairs, Daddy, 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 came and found me, and she said, what? I said, what is it? And I wish that I had a picture of her face that morning. There was joy, I mean, maybe I'm biased, she's my kid, but there was joy in her face like I don't know if I've ever seen before. And she came running over, she said, Daddy, and I said, what is it? And she said, I discovered a new truth. It was beautiful. I discovered a new truth. She had seen, there was some toy, some, I don't even remember now what it was, but it was something that she was used to seeing, something that was a regular part of our, I mean, it was something really commonplace, a ball or something, but all of us, it was like she had realized, mama's name is Dina, it was that kind of thing, like it was something ordinary, but all of a sudden she saw that same thing and she saw it just from a slightly different perspective. There was something new and exciting about it again. And it reminded me of when Lawrence Turner was here a few weeks ago, and he talked to us about the story of Abraham and about the promise. We'll talk about the promise again later today, but when God gave Abraham this promise, he came back to him later in his life. He said, have you ever thought about this promise, this same promise, but have you ever thought about it like this? And then again, later in his life, he brings him from a different perspective and says, remember, remember that promise, same, same promise, but have you ever thought about it like this? So as I was researching for this series, Resisting Restlessness, I started reading things about this idea, this idea of Sabbath. And by the way, if, if you are new to this group of people, if the terminology Sabbath is new to you, don't worry, you're not alone. Hopefully, over the next two, three weeks, we're, we're all going to learn a little bit more about it. But um, as I was reading, it was as if there was this nudge, this, um, it, was, it was as if God was saying, have you ever thought about Sabbath? Same Sabbath, same truth, but have you ever thought about it from this perspective? from this perspective. So, same truth, but maybe a little different approach than we're used to taking. If you have come to understand Jesus through a specific description of Sabbath, through a specific picture, my hope this morning is not that we're gonna debunk that or change that. If you've seen Jesus and the Sabbath in a certain way, my hope is that that remains beautiful to you. But as we look at it, maybe through some different language, maybe a different approach, my hope is that you'll recognize same truth, different perspective. So in order to get there, since we're talking for the next three weeks about Christianity and culture, I thought maybe we should establish what is, a, what is our common uh, working definition of what culture will be. So when I talk about culture... Um, what I mean is simply this, and I think, it's, I think it's a flexible enough definition. We won't vote on it this morning. Maybe in week three we will. Um, when I talk about Sabbath, we're going to use this as our operating definition. Uh, not Sabbath. When we talk about culture, uh, we're going to use this as our operating definition. A way, culture is a way of being in the world. So culture is... Good, this side, good. This side, louder next time. Culture is? Good. Culture is a way of being in the world. 
Now, sometimes culture happens on purpose. There are people that have made entire careers writing books, establishing uh, systems, a four-point step to how you can create a better culture in your workplace, right? Have you ever read or seen something like that, usually on Facebook? Well, sometimes culture happens on purpose, but sometimes culture happens on accident. It creeps up, it grows in ways that we never would have expected. Case in point, I never meant to grow a handlebar mustache. It was never in my, my intent. It was never part of the plan. I never anticipated that that would be part of my way of being in the world. But I did, in late in 2015, I decided um, that 2016 was going to be my year to really grow a beard. Not a mustache, not a handlebar mustache, but I, in fact, I had a hashtag for it, and it was year of the beard. 2016, hashtag year of the beard. And I was ready, I, but I, whenever I told anyone about it, I was always uh, careful to say, well, I'm not just going to let this thing go. I'm going to maintain it. I'm going to keep it groomed. Dina's going to not kick me out of the house for it. It's, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let it go. But in the back of my mind, I always knew. Some part of me always knew at some point, I'm going to let it go. And so for a couple months, I did. I kept it trimmed and maintained. And, um, and then I felt that, that nagging in my life, right? Like, let's see what this thing can do. Let's see where we can go. And so I let it go. And it was one, I, I didn't think much about it until one day I was driving in the car on the way to church. And I just started sort of playing with part of the thing on one side and the other side. And I didn't think about it until I got here. And Ryan, who plays keyboards, is part of our worship team. He's one of our worship elders. I was sitting in my office and he said, you're growing handlebars, aren't you? I said, nope. Not my intent. It was never part of my plan to grow a handlebar mustache. Hashtag year of the beard. And he said, okay, whatever. And so then I got home that night and Dina said to me, with even more disdain in her voice than Ryan had, she said, are you growing handlebars? I said, no. Year of the beard. Hashtag. Uh, and then I went into our bathroom, and I looked myself in the face, and I recognized that, in fact, this was part of my way of being in the world. But as long as there's been culture, as long as there's been something happening in our world, a way of being, there have always been countercultural movements. And so that night, Dina was a one-woman countercultural movement in our house, and she said, might I suggest a new way of being in the world? And so here we are, my smiling face without mustache. I never meant to grow the handlebar mustache, but there it was, sure enough. So this brings us to our first uh, recalibrate question that's in your worship guide. Question one is, what area of your life, what is one area of your life where you feel God has led you to a new way of being in the world? It could be a job, it could be a relationship. Of course, every generation has its own way of sort of being, establishing how we're going to be in the world. And as a result, 
Countercultural movements spring up in every area, politics, religion, art. Some of you might recognize the recent boom, boom in popularity of the keep calm imagery. Have you seen those? Facebook, Twitter, online. Maybe you've seen posters in the shops on Pearl Street. It seems like just about everyone has their own version of the keep calm poster. So you, if you like pigs, you can keep calm and bacon on. If you like soccer, you can keep calm and football on. If you like, if you like Boulder Church, I guess. We haven't made one yet. But these popped up everywhere. They were so popular recently. And I found out that the origins of this movement were actually much older than just keeping calm. But in the late 1930s, someone in the British government was anticipating the start of World War II. They knew it was coming. They knew it was going to happen. And they were anticipating a culture of chaos and fear. And so they said, maybe there's a better way of being in the world. Maybe there's a way we can counteract that. So they developed this this slogan, this campaign, keep calm and carry on. That's how it started. Keep calm, carry on. They, were, they knew that there was going to be a culture of fear, of chaos. And so they said, let's counter that. More recently, in 2011, the Occupy movement came up with a slogan of their own. They looked at the way uh, the economy in America was operating. And whether or not you agree with their politics, their premise was this. They proposed that the way the country was running was based on about 1%, the top 1%, in fact. The top 1%, the, the top richest people in the country. So we probably have between uh, 150 and 200 people here um, this morning. I'm going to ask for two brave volunteers. I saw one hand go up in the back. Would you stand up where we can see you? Perfect. One more. Peter, would you stand for us? Now, last week we had a church business session. And okay, three's okay. Uh, last week we had a church business session. And if we had made our decision based on just the two people that are standing, we might have had our own Occupy movement here at the church, right? We might have, um, thank you. Um, the premise was that the way the country was running represented only 1%. And so this slogan came about as, as people in the Occupy movement looked around and said, we're not sure that we agree with this way of being in the world. Of course, this tension between popular culture and culture and counterculture has been around since forever. Um, it's, it's recorded in the Bible. In fact, if you look at the Bibles that are in the backs of your pews, on page 6, I'll invite you to join me there. It's in Genesis chapter 12 that God gives Abraham a revolutionary and countercultural promise. He says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise was revolutionary, countercultural even for a couple of reasons. First, 
we have to remember that at this time in history, you didn't just pick up and leave your family. You didn't just, you didn't just up and go, right? We're supposed to be fruitful. We're supposed to multiply. And so we stay with the family, and that's our job. We grow the family. We grow the tribe. But this promise, this call to Abraham, in this God says, I want you to uproot yourself and go somewhere new. I want to show you a new way of being in the world. This was also revolutionary for another reason, and this is that um, at that time, the way of establishing your way of being in the world was not to bless people. It was to conquer and smash and grab and grow the tribe by suppressing all the tribes around us. And so when God says to Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless you, and then in turn, you are going to bless others. This was unheard of in the world at the time. Now today we look at this promise when God says, you'll bless all the nations of the earth. Today we read that, we interpret it as, as a prophecy about the lineage of Jesus, that eventually Jesus would be born. But what we don't get, at least in the story itself, is any indication that God said, okay, Abraham, now here's what's going to happen. Someone's going to begot so-and-so, and they're going to begot so-and-so, and here's the lineage of how he didn't. All we know from the story, we don't know that God spelled it out. He just gave Abraham a promise, unlike anything that he had known before. We hear the same kind of countercultural language recorded in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. And it's probably one of the most famous sermons that Jesus has given. One gospel writer calls it the Sermon on the Plain. The other calls it the Sermon on the Mount. But we hear things like Jesus saying, you have heard, but I tell you. Or, you know this way of being in the world, but let me suggest to you a new way of being in the world. And then he was crazy enough to say things like this. Do you know who's going to inherit the kingdom of heaven? The poor people. Do you know who's going to be first in line to meet God? The meek. Now, that's, that was revolutionary for them. It's revolutionary for us today. If we wanted to meet Jesus and there was a line, like anyone who's been to Disney World, who enjoys standing at the... No, we find ways, right? We buy the fast pass to get to the front of the line. Busy elbows, right? But Jesus had the audacity to say there is a new way of being in the world, and it's opposite. It's counter to everything that you've ever thought before. Which brings us to our story in Exodus 20, maybe chronologically a little out of order, but um, in Exodus 20, some of you recognize the text already. When I say that, a light bulb goes off, and you think to yourselves, what is countercultural about Exodus 20? It's the Ten Commandments. It's old. There's nothing new about this. Well, that's partly true. And some of that, I think, is because of the way that we read the Ten Commandments today. When we jump in, we typically start with the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And we miss the way that God, we miss an important part of the story where God sets this up, not just as a list of do's and don'ts, but as a new way of being for the children of Israel. We skip the introductory statement that frames all Ten Commandments not only as revolutionary, but also countercultural. Here's what I mean. 
the children of Israel had been slaves in the house of Egypt for, depending on who you ask, somewhere between 200 and 400 years. Now that is, depending on how you do the math, roughly the amount of time that we've been settled in the United States. So when God calls the children of Israel out, he's calling them out of a culture. He's calling them out of a way of being. And that way of being, I would like to suggest, is the Egyptian way. Like if you think, if we do the math, and they had been there, say it was only 200 years. And if we, to make math easy, because I didn't graduate with a degree in math. If we say that it's 20 years between every generation, that's 10 generations. If it's 400 years, then it's 20 generations. The exact dates aren't important for this discussion, except that they had been there long enough to acclimate to a certain way of being in the world. And that way was the Egyptian way. So when they thought of Pharaoh, you know, there were two, at least two names that they used to refer to Pharaoh. One was the high priest of every temple. Because no matter where Pharaoh went, he was the God above all the other gods. And the other was the Lord of two lands because they believed that Pharaoh was both human and divine. They believed when he died on earth, he would ascend to become the God Osiris. So when God says to them, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, that's more than just saying, hey guys, come this way. He's saying, I am the God who brought you out of that way of being. This was a revolutionary idea because not only were they free from Pharaoh's earthly government, they were also free from that spiritual system. Following Yahweh, the name for God, offered the children of Israel a new way of being in the world. And so the Ten Commandments are more than just a list of rules. They're more than just a do this and don't do that and do but they're actually a code. They're part of a way of being in the world. So when we read, you shall have no other gods before me, God is offering freedom from the rule, from the spiritual rule of Pharaoh. He's no longer the top of the food chain. When we read, don't make any idols, God offers freedom from the religious system that characterized their way of being. This system, uh, it, was a, it was a hierarchy of gods where he was the top. But it's like God says to them, seek first my kingdom. Don't worry about the other idols, but seek first my kingdom and the rest will be added to you. Those should be familiar words to us, although they weren't phrased quite that way until later. When God says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, we typically have a couple ways of interpreting that. The first is that we think to ourselves, well, we shouldn't use God's name as a swear word. And I agree with that. We should, I believe we should have respect for the name of God. I used to work at Starbucks, and there was a guy um, that worked with us there. His name was Andy. And Andy was just about everyone's favorite person to work with uh, because he was fun. He got along with everyone. He didn't mess up the drinks. He didn't make a mess generally. Yeah. I probably shouldn't have used his name in case he listens to this later. But um, Andy was fun to work with. If there was any flaw that Andy had, it was that um, sometimes words came out of his mouth. Maybe I should put it this way. Andy was what you might call an artist 
of the profane. <laughs> he could, if he dropped a cup and spilled something, he could put together a string of words that would make you laugh and sort of blush at the same time. It was like, you knew it was funny, but you also knew you weren't really supposed to laugh at it. And the problem was that every once in a while, our customers got to hear or witness the artist at work. And so Andy was trying to get it under control. One day he came up with a solution. He came in, he said, got it. Know what I'm going to do, guys? Have you ever thought about using the names of country artists as your swear words? And it actually was a pretty good system. We'd hear a cup drop in the back and we'd hear, Rascal Flats! We'd hear another clang somewhere and we'd hear, Taylor Swift! It was actually pretty funny. But I don't think when God says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, that was quite what he had in mind. The other way that we typically interpret it um, is that we'll say, don't speak on God's behalf if you're not really speaking on God's behalf, right? Um, when, we read this, when, we, when we read this commandment, we, we don't typically think of it that way. Or we, sorry, we typically, that's one of the two ways we think of it. But I'd like to suggest a third way. And I believe that at the heart of this section, at the heart of this commandment, is this idea. That God is saying to the children of Israel, don't say with your words that you live under Yahweh, but then still live with your actions, with your life, like you're still in the kingdom of Pharaoh. He offered them a new way of being in their world and a chance to revolutionize their culture. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Japheth and I attended a conference in Denver called Q Ideas. And the idea behind Q is that we sort of all show up and we discuss different issues that affect our culture. So we talked about things like marijuana legalization in Colorado. We talked about whether or not robots, seriously, we talked about whether robots might take over the world someday. We talked about First Nations. We talked about gender identity issues. We talked about all sorts excuse me, about all sorts of things. But at the introduction of one of these talks, toward the beginning, I heard a story that um, was new to me. Some of you might know it, but it was 1963, and it was a Sunday morning, like most other Sunday mornings, in the city of Birmingham. And the congregation of the 16th Street Baptist Church gathered for worship like they always did. They sang songs, they listened to the message, and while they were inside, four men pulled up in a pickup truck and put a box under the front porch filled with 15 sticks of dynamite and a timing device, and they drove away. And when that bomb went off and the church burned, 22 people were injured and four little girls were killed. Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. Tragic. What I learned that morning, though, was that the 16th Street Baptist Church didn't burn just because of the color of the skin of the people that were worshiping inside. The reason that church was attacked, the reason that church burned, was because that church was at the heart of a countercultural movement that we today call the civil rights movement. We've sort of sanctified it a little bit by just 
giving it a historical name. But this church was at the center of that movement. They burned because they believed there was a better way of being in the world. So when I heard that story, when I think about it now, I have to wonder, what would our church burn for today? Maybe we play the bells too loud on Saturday mornings on the roof. Maybe the wiring is too old in parts of the building. We'd burn for that reason. But seriously, when was the last time that we posed that kind of challenge to the established way of being in the world? Brings us to our second recalibrate question. How does your way, how does my way of being in the world pose a challenge to the culture around us? We struggle with this idea today, I think, because when we talk about being countercultural, we want to take one of two approaches. One approach is to say no to everything. We feel like we live in a culture that says yes to everything. And so the natural inclination is, well, we'll just go the other way and we'll just say, nope. Seems simple enough. The other approach that we take is we look at the culture around us and we just sort of say, this is, you know, we're, everyone familiar with the expression in the world but not of the world? So what we do is we say, well, we, we want to be sure that we're not of the world, so we sort of isolate, we sort of retreat, we sort of seclude ourselves. But I wonder sometimes if we do that to the point that we're barely in the world. makes me think of the words of Jesus. Not, I came that you may have life and be protected, but I came that you may have life and have it to the full. But sometimes our way of, of being countercultural means that we don't know how to respond to the world. We don't know even how to respond within Christianity sometimes. Sometimes I would suggest we don't even know how to be cultural within our own tribe. Within the world, did you know this? That in ancient Rome, it was common, whenever Caesar would um, capture a city, he would send out a media team. So they'd go out and they would give everybody what they called euangelion. Well, I sound a little French when I say it. Ha ha, euangelion. Um, but it's a Greek word. Euangelion, is, it's, it's the same root that we use for the word evangelists. It's the same word that we use for evangelicals, for evangelism, and it simply means good news. So Caesar would send out people and they would say, Euangelion! I don't know, they probably wouldn't say it that way. But they'd say, good news, you've been conquered. Caesar is Lord. Good news. In the early church listen to that, and they thought, there's a new way of being in the world. There's a better way of being in the world. And so they would go out, and they would say, good news, Jesus is Lord. Now, let me ask you this. When is the last time that you turned on the TV or talked to someone on the street, and they said to you, oh, evangelicals, they're always full of such good news. 
Have you ever heard people say that? I never have. I've heard people say, oh, evangelicals, they are either retreating or they're running for the hills or they're saying no to everything, right? But it's time for the church to change that culture. It's time for us to be people that are giving people good news, saying there is a better way of being in the world. Within Christianity, there's sort of this popular idea. Another example. There's sort of this popular idea, and we boil it down. We call it the prosperity gospel sometimes. And the idea behind it is this. If you love Jesus, Jesus loves you, then if you're good, then Jesus gives you more stuff. You'll have a, you'll, you have to say it with a sort of a Texan accent and a big smile. You'll have a blessed life, <laughs> right? We're familiar with this. We've heard it before. It's called the prosperity gospel. The problem is, if you look at the words that come directly from Jesus in the gospels, Jesus doesn't say, you're going to have a blessed life. He says, this is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult. Changing the world is not going to be easy. There's a story, in fact, in the gospel, in the gospels of, of, of a guy that comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, wherever you lead, wherever you go, I will follow you. Just make me success. Well, he doesn't say it quite that way. That's my interpretation of the story. But Jesus turns to him and he says, look, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't even have any place to offer you to put your head tonight. But that doesn't sound safe. That doesn't sound prosperous. It doesn't sound comfortable. I'd like to suggest to you that the, this morning that the gospel is not about being where we're comfortable. It's about being where we're called. The gospel is not about being where we're comfortable. It's about being where we're called. And when culture tells us you could have more, you could have more newer, easier life in the suburbs, we say there's another way of being in the world. It's culture that tells us we should do the safe thing the comfortable thing. We should protect our reputation so we have a long and successful ministry. That sounds good. Do we want that? Do I want that? Absolutely. I like having a career. But do we risk losing our voice when we're more interested in self-preservation and safety? I wonder, would Jesus have gone to the cross if he were just a little more interested in self-preservation, just a little more interested in playing it safe. But instead, God says to us, there's a new way of being in the world. So what about within our own tribe? If you're new to this community, if you're new to this beautiful group of people, you'll start to, as you spend more time with us, you'll start to hear some of the code. You'll start to hear us use some of the in-speak we don't mean to do it. We don't mean to do it. But we start to say, you start to hear words like new meat. You start to hear words like ingathering. You might ask yourself exactly what is being gathered and into what is it being placed once it's been gathered. Or another one that you might hear, probably will hear, uh, is this acronym SDAs. It stands for Seventh-day Adventists. When you know what it means, it's not that threatening, but if you hear it for the first time, SDAs, you might think to yourself, 
It's that contagious. Can I catch that? You see, our tribe has its own culture. We have our own way of talking about things. Sometimes it's really helpful. Sometimes it's really beautiful because I believe sometimes our language, sometimes our culture gives us a unique way of talking about Jesus. Sharing some new perspective on truth. But other times, if we're honest, there are things about our culture that maybe should have us asking us, uh, should maybe, we should be saying to ourselves, I never, I never meant to grow a handlebar mustache. Some of the ways we've treated women, some of the ways we've treated minorities, some of the ways that we have drawn lines that suggest who is in and who is out should have us asking ourselves, saying to ourselves, surely, surely there is a new way of being in the world. Now at this point, some of you are looking at your watches and you're saying, we're 30 minutes into the sermon and we haven't even cracked the commandment on Sabbath. Where is this going? What does any of this have to do with Sabbath? So I'd like for us to just briefly look at Exodus to read these first three commandments in context. Because if we hear them from the voice of an earthly throne, they could, they could just as easily come from anyone that was establishing some sort of new government, right? If I wanted to set up a new government, what I would say is, uh, I'm, I'm on top, I'm, I'm the ruler, no other, no other rulers, no other kings, huh, and I think I was clever because that's my last name, no other kings, no reminders of the way it used to be, and take me seriously, no jokes, no jokes about who I am behind my bath, you're back, you're my people now. That's what I would say if I were establishing a new government, a new kingdom. And so we read this language. And God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image, any likeness of any, anything that is on heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that's in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. These words up to this point could have come from anyone who was proposing a revolutionary, countercultural way of being in the world. But it's the next commandment, the one that we'll start to talk about next week in more detail about Sabbath, where God says that the kingdom of Yahweh is radically different from the kingdom of Pharaoh from any kingdom like his before or after. The economy, the economy of Pharaoh is about anxiety, oppression, production. 
But the kingdom of God is about liberation, inclusion, and the assurance that Jesus is enough. So to a peculiar group of people who are used to living under immense daily pressure to perform and produce and struggling to find their identity, God still offers a new way of being in the world. When culture tells us that to be successful is to have a to-do list that extends into tomorrow, God offers us today and reminds us that he is enough. Which brings us to our final recalibrate question this morning. Which is easier, to see the value of the person God created you to be or to find an identity in what you can accomplish? We'll talk more next week about how the idea and practice and observance of Sabbath is at the heart of this new way of being that God offers. And the week after that, we'll talk about why the other nine commandments matter in all of this. Grace and peace. Thank you.